Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Yes, it's that time of the week. It's time for The Naked Scientist. I wasn't on the show last year, last week rather, so Chris and I haven't spoken in a couple of weeks, and it's always wonderful to be in conversation with you. Chris, welcome to the show. I hope you've been well. I have. Good morning. Now, our science story this morning is a really, really fascinating one, particularly for people who are scared of needles and stuff. Scientists apparently have been producing insulin that possibly could be available in pill form. Yes, this is a very exciting breakthrough. For many years, we've managed diabetes where people don't have enough insulin, either they can't make any or their body doesn't have sufficient insulin for their needs, by injecting it. And the reason you have to inject insulin is it is a protein, and this means that if you were to swallow this chemical, then your digestive juices in your stomach and small intestine would break it down before any was able to be absorbed, and that means your blood sugar wouldn't be affected, and you need insulin to control blood sugar. So what researchers at Harvard University have done and published this week in the journal PNAS, and uh, this is Samir Mitra Gothri, who's the lead author on this work, they have managed to find a way of embedding insulin into what we call an ionic liquid. And the ionic liquid is made by taking two common chemicals, um, one's called choline and one's called geranic acid. And when you bring these chemicals together, they form a cage which they literally call it cage for choline and geranic acid, around the insulin. And it does several things. One, it protects the insulin by stabilising the protein against the effects of stomach acid. Two, it can burrow through the mucus that lines the intestine and would normally stop the insulin being being able to be absorbed. And three, it can prise open these junctions that hold the cells of the intestinal wall together so that the insulin molecule can slip through. And when they administer this to rats, they can show that the blood sugar drops in the same way it would if the rats were injected with insulin. But the effect is longer lasting and much more physiological, more natural, because the insulin goes in via the intestine rather than from the skin. And so they have high hopes for being able to extrapolate this to what would go on in a human. Now, obviously, it's very early days and it needs safety trials and needs to be proven that you can do this in a way that's safe for the person's blood sugar, but also is not going to have other untoward effects. But this is really exciting because for years, decades, diabetics have had to inject themselves. And this carries all kinds of problems. Uh, This might be one way that you could turn, turn this into a disease managed by a pill rather than an injection. Fascinating. Ronald, good morning to you and welcome to the show. What is your question for the Naked Scientist? Good day, CVS, and good day, Chris. Um, I've got a question in terms of, let's say for argument's sake, you set up a laser beam and you ensure that this beam is absolutely level. And then you fly a plane um, alongside this beam, let's say for a thousand kilometers. Uh, Taking in consideration that the, the surface of the Earth is curved, would that mean then that you would uh, ascend, the plane would ascend exponentially? Well, if you were that to... 
Well, if you were to fire a laser beam in a straight line, then the light doesn't have any mass. So the light's not going to be affected, I mean, in an appreciable way by Earth's gravity in the same way that your aeroplane is. But if the aeroplane were to follow the line of the laser beam, it would also go in a straight line. It wouldn't go exponentially. I think that an exponential thing is a curve. It would go in a straight line from the Earth's surface out into space. That, that, that's actually what I was asking is. So, so in other words, what I'm saying is, is that if you fly level um, you, you, and not following the curvature of the Earth, you would actually start to ascend. Yes, you absolutely would. The thing is that a plane, when it's flying, of course, will follow a curve. It won't fly in a straight line and go into space forever for all kinds of reasons of physics. But if you were to fly in a, in a straight line following your laser beam, a laser beam fired from the Earth's surface, for all intents and purposes, would go in a straight line out from the Earth away into space. Thank you, Ronald. Thank you so much for calling in. But Fana, good morning. Good morning, CBS. Good morning, uh, Naked Scientist. My question is around weeds. Uh, I see that weeds always overtake good crops. So why are the weeds so-called, and why can't we use goods then as a, a food source if they just to be, seem to be so in abundance? <laughs> Chris? Yeah, it's a good question. When I look at my vegetable patch, I can see all too clearly how aggressive and invasive the weeds are compared to the things we do want. And the thing is, we notice that the weeds are invasive and intrusive because they outgrow the thing we want for the very reason that they do that. It's not that weeds per se have got some special characteristic, it's just that because we like them less than we like the thing we are trying to grow, we regard them as more of a nuisance. But there are lots of uh, very productive plants that we do like to eat and grow, which are very prolific. And if you put them in the right environment, they will grow extremely well. It's just that we tend to notice when things that we don't like outgrow the things that we do like. Scientists are trying to learn from this, though, and use this to our advantage. Because if you take, as an example, cereal crops, so wheat and barley and so on, those ancestral cereals um, did not look like the modern environment, the modern counterparts we have today. The versions of these crops that we have today have been produced by selective breeding. And what we've done is to choose varieties that seem to have a very good yield. They seem to be quite resilient and they can tolerate weather and drought and so on. They look nothing like their historical counterparts. Now, actually, some of the things that we've bred into the crops are very beneficial, like the things I mentioned. But at the same time, when you breed for these traits, sometimes you can actually lose something. Tomatoes is a good example. The tomatoes we have today are bred to be huge, high productivity, nice-looking fruit, but they taste rubbish compared to these very much smaller ancestral varieties. And people are now realising that actually we've lost something in trying to make something better. So what they're now doing is going back into the history books and back to nature, finding the original ancestral varieties of these things and trying to bring some of the traits that they have back into the modern equivalents. So in other words, you take the weed equivalent or a distant relative and, t and try and do selective breeding to bring some of those traits into the modern counterparts so that you can have better disease resistance or faster growth and better flavour more than anything. So weeds can be good too, and they're not just a nuisance. There's, there's a good set of genetic diversity in there that we can sometimes tap into. Laurel, good morning. Welcome to the show. Morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just, you know how whales and all the, the mammals are eating plastic and dying from the, from consuming the plastic. Mm. I just wondered if there's any chance. What are the chances of mammals eventually um, learning that it's not 
um, nourishing and that it's going to do them harm. They've learned from other things. You know, they don't eat other like sand in the sea and rocks and shells and things like that. So I just wondered what the chances of them ever learning from um, that they won't that plastic isn't um, mm. good for them. Thanks, Laurel. There's a number of aspects to this, and thank you for raising an important issue. The probably most worrying aspect is the amount of plastic in the ocean is huge. It's adding up to millions of tonnes, millions of particles. And the thing about plastic is it's very long-lived. And when plastic pieces rub against each other, they don't disappear. They turn into tiny bits of plastic, microplastics. And these microplastics have a very big surface area, but a very tiny volume. And this means they're rubbing up against a lot of water. Because plastic is oil-based, it can pick up from the water things that much prefer to join up with oil compared with water. So you end up with these tiny microplastic particles carrying a toxic cargo of all these oil-soluble things that are also in the water, various pollutants, other things such as insecticides, other persistent chemicals, which are really not good news. Now, those microplastics then get absorbed by creatures that filter water, so shellfish, for example, and filter feeders. And they take these plastics in because they're too tiny for them to discriminate against, and they bring them into their body. And the toxic cargo clinging to these microplastics then dissolves in the body of the thing that's eaten the plastic. And the thing that's eaten the plastic then poos out the old plastic again, but it's now picked up the toxic cargo. Over a long time, those toxic things are going to build up in that filter feeder. But then along comes a fish and eats the filter feeder. Now you've got a fish which has got all of the toxic cargo in the fish, and then along comes a bigger fish and eats the smaller fish, and it's got all of the toxic cargo that was in all the small fish it was eating. And in this way, these chemicals can accumulate through the food chain. And then along comes your big top predator mammal, like an elephant seal or something, and he or she eats a big fish, which is full of all of these things that have accumulated up the food chain. So the animal hasn't had to learn to discriminate against plastic or not. It's just going about its business and it's eating things it would normally eat. But it's having an indirect effect of the plastic brought to bear on it. And this is the big problem, that although there are some bits of plastic we can see, there are lots of effects of plastic that we can't. And the lifetime of plastic in the ocean is incredibly long, which means we're going to have to live with the legacy of this for a really long time, and it's really hard to do something about it, which is why people are campaigning, let's try and stop it getting any worse now, so that at least the problem won't continue to explode. Because if we carry on at the present rate, and we've already got a big problem, we'll have a ginormous problem. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef, take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> the Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people? Sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist Podcast or head over to our website. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Judy, good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, I want to know when I swim in winter, as I did today, when you're out in the pool, it's freezing, but after 50 meters, even when your arm comes out of the water into the air, it doesn't get cold. It feels nice and warm. How, how does your body just get warm so quickly? 
<laughs> Mine doesn't. <laughs> oh. yeah, Judy's in the Republic of Hard Bay in oh. Cape Town. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, that's cold water. Um, I, I don't have this problem. I have a real problem getting into really, really, really cold water. And in fact, um, we did a program on The Naked Scientist for our Christmas show a few years ago where th- there is this uh, group of people who go, go ice swimming. In many countries, Russia, they do it. In in London, there is an open-air pond that people break the ice in winter to go swimming. And we sent one of our staff, and Mm. and she did go swimming. And we had to... Most of the interview consisted of bleep noises, actually, because she she hardly uttered a word that wasn't unbroadcastable. Um, But the, the bottom line is that your body is very sensitive to change, and your nervous system is programmed to detect change. Because... At the end of the day, when things change, that could be a change for the better, but it could be a change for the worst. You need to know when things are changing so you can attend to them. So your nervous system is exquisitely sensitive to something suddenly departing from what it's used to. And then it gets used to the new state of affairs and it signals that change to you. So when you first put your hand in very cold or very hot water, then you're going to have a barrage of sensory information coming to your brain saying, wow, something has changed. And superimposed on that is the whole sensation of is it hot or is it cold and whether or not we find that unpleasant. Now, once you get used to something, a number of things happen. One, your body goes into defense mode. So it actually replumbs the route that blood is taking through the body withdrawing the circulation from the surface of the skin to cut down the rate of heat loss. You also increase your metabolic rate to generate more heat so that you don't get so cold. And your nervous system adapts to the fact that you are in a cold environment so it doesn't keep on reminding you it's cold because things aren't changing. You're now cold, so you have got used to the situation. So I think in this situation, um, you have adapted your nervous system to the ambient temperature of the very cold water and so your body temperature has, has stopped plummeting because you've directed blood more towards your core than your skin and therefore your rate of heat loss has slowed right down. And under those circumstances, you're able to tolerate it for maybe 10 minutes or so before you might become dangerously cold. Thanks for that question, Judy. Much appreciated. Paul, you've been holding on. Thank you for your patience. Get straight into your question. Yeah, hi. Okay, I've got two Jack Russells, one male, one female. The male's a little different, as in from a puppy, he would watch television, bark at National Geographic, etc. But my question now, which I discovered recently, was I've got a cell phone body glove, a heavy-duty one, so the plastic's quite thick. If I take my fingernail and I, I strum like a guitar, a little tune, it makes a clicking sound, his lower jaw moves instantaneously in exactly the same rhythm as my clicking. <laughs> now, <laughs> what's interesting about this is that obviously for, for the human eye, I can't see a time lapse at all. There obviously is one, but it's very, very small. And the other day, I did it while he was asleep and his jaw still moves while he's asleep. It actually wakes him up. So you... Explain to me, I've gone to 20 other dogs. He's the only dog that does this. Mm. Uh, No, animals are very sensitive to sound. And uh, dogs have exquisite sense of, of hearing. A friend of mine had a budgie that used to dance to meatloaf. She used to play. It was only meatloaf, right? She could, could play other things. I don't know what was special about meatloaf, but uh, Bat Out of Hell 2, it really liked. Bat Out of Hell 1 didn't care. And it would bob its head in time to the bass beat of Bat Out of Hell 2 from Meatloaf. And we did the experiment. We'd try other things, very similar genres of music. Didn't didn't have any effect. So the, the bird obviously was exquisitely sensitive to that particular frequency. Dogs do have very good ears. And there are connections 
in the nervous system that elicit reflexes. So when you when you are present a stimulus, then you you can get a response. And some humans do this. You can you can make a sound, or you can have an unexpected thing happen, and someone will will twitch in response to it. And it's probably because that there is a certain set of connections in the brain that when you present that particular sound stimulus, or it could be a visual stimulus or whatever, it then elicits a certain pattern of nerve activity that in certain individuals, will result in a certain muscular movement. I suspect that's what's going on, that the clicking noise is of a set of frequencies which, to which the dog is sensitive, and at the same time as eliciting the response in the hearing parts of the brain, there might be some additional connections onto those motor areas that correspond to the dog's face muscles, and it's eliciting that twitch, but also it, it's when it's processing the sound that it's then getting aroused and, and woken up by it. Was your friend's bird committed to doing anything for love? Um, it, it would do anything for love, actually. Would it do anything for birdseed? <laughs> there was a very Paul, funny. The there was a very funny uh, comedy, actually, that where they they made a song called "I Would Do Anything for a Shag." That's another kind of bird. Um, <laughs> and they actually they had they had a guy dressed up as Meatloaf driving around on a motorbike uh, with a big barbecue on the back of the mo- you know bry on the back of the motorbike, yeah. and they changed the words. So I'd do anything for grub. So, because they were push, they were saying he's a little bit on the large side, of course. <laughs> Paul, welcome to the show. What do you want to ask, Chris? Yeah, it's regarding body odor, and I know the lazy answer would be it's caused by sweat. I have an eight-year-old who sweats, who has a terrible body odor. I've tried number of things, but they're not working. Is there any scientific uh, reason why she she has this? Well, there's there's a number of reasons why this happens. Um, The reason we do have odour for the average person is because when we sweat, then the water that's in the sweat feeds bacteria, which are living on the skin surface quite naturally. And those bacteria use the water, the moisture. They use other chemicals and oils which are secreted from apocrine glands, which are in the sweaty bits, and dead skin and other things that they can eat, and they take that banquet and turn it into bacterial burps, which are body odour, whiffy, volatile chemicals. And therefore, having a decent wash can help. Using an antiperspirant deodorant can help, because antiperspirants don't just mask smells. Antiperspirant deodorants have various substances in them that form a gel when they get wet, and they effectively clog up your sweat glands, so they reduce the amount of water coming out onto the skin in the sweaty places, and that can cut down, A, the dampening effect, but also the growth of the microbes. So Mm. hygiene and antiperspirant deodorants can help. Some people do have a condition which means they produce a lot of sweat, and this can be a nerve situation and some people can be helped with this by actually deactivating the part of the nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system that drives the production of sweat in some people it's it's pathological they get very sweaty hands for example and it's a real problem for them and this can be sorted out now there's a rare condition which is called trimethylaminuria and this is where people have a fishy smell and it is because of a metabolic problem. It's not really a problem, but it's it's that they can't break down certain molecules. And those molecules have a fishy smell. This is trimethylaminuria and trimethylamines. They end up in your sweat because they can build up to higher levels in the bloodstream and they get filtered out into the sweat and they do make people have a, a fishy odour. And 
these for these poor unfortunate people through no fault of their own and it's not through bad hygiene their body just produces these smells they can end up with a fishy whiff and that, that there's not much we can do about that apart from perhaps change their diet a little bit to reduce the production of these molecules but you make them through your metabolism and this is rare but it's something that perhaps could be excluded our final question for the morning comes from you mina what is it hi good morning um, my question is, Einstein said that time is just an illusion and that the past, present and future exist simultaneously. So if I extrapolate that to the universe itself and say that the death of the universe exists simultaneously as this moment, and that means the death of time exists simultaneously with this moment, then I can't get my head around why does anything exist at all if the death of the universe and time itself doesn't exist? Okay, thanks, Mina. That sounds enormously complicated for our final minute, Chris. <laughs> well, well, if there's no time, then why, why is there a time limit? I just talk forever. <laughs> Touche. The yeah, program's already finished. Um, Mina, you know, you say you can't get your head around it. I can't get my head around this concept either. Um, the bottom line is that we know that time is ticking. We can put a date on the origin of the universe and we know how old the universe is, about 13.8 billion years. So we know that basically that, that there is an arrow of time and we know that the universe is growing and inflating. We, we know that it may have an, an ultimate death. It may have no end. We, we just don't know. Um, I don't pretend to understand the physics and I don't think Einstein um, would have been able to say for sure what was going on because when he came up with all of his theories, he fiddled some of them because he... Uh, thought he got something wrong in fact he hadn't the he he wanted the universe to be static he didn't want it to be growing and he couldn't reconcile the fact so he put a fiddle in fudge into his equations actually the universe is is growing and now we realize he shouldn't have fudged his equations You're absolutely right but um we don't really know and we don't understand how a lot of this works which is why we need physicists so everyone go to university and study quantum mechanics because <laughs> this is going to have the answer for us Chris, a wonderful segment. Thank you so much. We'll do it again next week. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.